what your country can do for you. There's a last time I've got to be in the lead. The Giants have the Peter, oh, you little mouse, so won't you go away? One ringy-dingy. Hand off to Griffin, cracks the middle, gets the five. Touchdown, Ohio State. Oklahoma, where the wind comes sweeping down the plane. I'm interested to know, Gracie, who's your choice? Need you ask, George. Time now for Spinning My Dad's Vinyl. Here with all his skips, scratches, and pops is my dad, Frank Vaccarello. Thanks, sweetie, and thank you for tuning into episode 38 of Spinning My Dad's Vinyl. Okay, it's been over a month since I've featured a trumpet player, so I'm having withdrawals. I was very glad to see this album in my dad's collection. I have long been a fan of this jazz icon, so let's get ready for some hot jazz with some hot tempos in Volume 38, Dizzy Will Excite. Thank you. 
St. Louis Blues, composed by W.C. Handy. And there's a tune that you've already heard and will most likely hear more times on other episodes of Spinning My Dad's Vinyl. All right, why this album? Well, Dizzy Gillespie has long been one of my favorite jazz musicians. I have owned several albums and CDs of his music over the years. He's also one of the artists who will also find spots in my Spotify libraries. Now, this is a great collection of recordings from Dizzy and his group. And when I read the liner notes, you'll understand why these songs sound so polished. And most of all, why I played this album is that we haven't heard from a trumpet player in the last four episodes. <laughs> now, for another tune you've heard before on an episode of this podcast. Thank you. 
Belongs to Daddy, written by Cole Porter. Now, we heard the original version sung by Mary Martin on episode 21 of Spinning My Dad's Vinyl. In fact, I think there's several versions in my dad's collection, and I will make every effort to play them all. And I really enjoyed Dizzy's take on it. All right, let's learn about this episode's record. It is Dizzy Gillespie, Have Trumpet, Will Excite. It's on the Verve Records Label, MGVS8313. It's a vinyl LP album stereo format. It was released in 1959, and its genre is jazz. Uh, also found out that it was recorded February 17th, 18th, and 20th, 1959. And the musicians were Dizzy Gillespie, of course, on trumpet, Junior Mance on piano, Lex Humphreys on drums, Sam Jones on double bass, Les Spann on guitar and flute. And now I am going to read all of the liner notes from the back of this album. With most of us, wrote Quincy Jones in the Jazz Review. After we get the technique and basic conception, the biggest problem is to find the right medium in which to express ourselves. Dizzy has. His style is so fully developed that it's like breathing with him. He can play whatever comes to his mind. His technique has become a part of him. Dizzy plays like a drummer. He has fantastic rhythmic displacement." Unquote. Rhythm is a constant consideration to Dizzy, not only the basic pulsations that makes for swinging, but also his theory and practice concerning the need to invent different rhythm patterns for nearly every tune, as he does on this album. There should, he says, be a definite rhythm pattern for each number. That way they won't sound alike, unquote. He elaborated on the subject at the first Monterey Jazz Festival. Quote, the basic thing about jazz music, Ralph Gleason quoted Dizzy in the San Francisco Chronicle, is putting the notes to rhythm, not the other way around. I think up a rhythm first, and then I put notes to it to correspond with the chord. You can play very, very beautiful notes, and if it doesn't have any rhythmic form, it doesn't amount to anything. Don't lose sight of the rhythm in the music, because that's the most important part. Even more than the notes, because you can take just one note and put all kinds of different rhythms to the note, and with just that one note, everybody is clapping their feet and dancing and shouting and things like that. I would suggest, therefore, that the first time through this album you pay particular attention to both the rhythmic framework Dizzy sets up and his own irresistible capacity to swing. There is also, of course, the characteristic Gillespie humor and another quality, lyricism, as in There Is No Greater Love, that is too often minimized in discussions of Dizzy's work. 
Dizzy, as Quincy, Quincy Jones has noted, in the last three or four years has been playing better than he ever has before. Yet it sometimes appears that Dizzy, once a controversial rebel, is now somewhat taken for granted. One wonders whether all his followers realize to what extent he has mastered his horn and how commanding a player has, he has become. In this session, the arrangements were all heads set by Dizzy. He notes, incidentally, that his wife Lorraine suggested the inclusion of Moonglow. In the band at these sessions on February 17th and 18th, 1959, was drummer Lex Humphreys, who had played with Chet Baker while in the Army in Europe, and who has worked in this country with Lee Morgan, among others. Sam Jones is one of the steadiest bass players in jazz and has played with Cannonball Adderley, Kenny Dorham, and several other groups. Les Spann has been with Phineas Newborn, and before that he was in, in the same Tennessee State University band as Jimmy Cleveland. Junior Mance, a rhythmically assured functional pianist, has been Dinah Washington as an accompanist and has also been in the combos of Art Blakey and Cannonball Adderley. Dizzy is happy about the results of these dates, which he describes as having been completely relaxed. We'd been playing these tunes for a while in clubs. None of them were learned for just a record date, and so there was none of the tension involved with new material. Coursing through Dizzy's performances, there is both a virility and a daring that have always marked his work. Dizzy has never stopped trying for and making the hard ones. It's not only, as Quincy Jones said, that he can play whatever comes to his mind, it's also that his mind continues to be active and adventurous. To put it more simply, Dizzy is never entirely predictable. That is written by Nat Hentoff, co-editor of The Jazz Review. All right, let's take a look and see what Discog has this album valued at. Comes in at lowest at $3, highest at $30, and median at $10. Amazon had it in a range of $7 to $10, and eBay had a couple in the 9 buck range. Now, my dad's record is in eh, poor to fair condition. There's plenty of crackling, but it doesn't sound too bad in most spots. Now, there's a small skip coming up in a couple of tunes. The cover is in surprisingly good condition. However, my dad stuck one of his address labels on the front cover, so I have to call it poor according to the Discogs.com rating system that I use. So, what do I value my dad's record at? Uh, I'll call it a buck. All right, right now, this is something I can see right outside my window. Thank you. 
There is Moonglow, written by Eddie DeLang, Irving Mills, and Will Hudson. All right, let's learn a little bit about Dizzy Gillespie. He was born October 20th, 1917 in Chira, South Carolina. John Burke's Dizzy Gillespie's effects on jazz cannot be overstated. His trumpet playing influenced every player who came after him. His compositions have become part of the jazz canon, and his bands have included some of the most significant names in the business. He was also, along with Charlie Parker, one of the major leaders of the bebop movement. Gillespie's father was an amateur band leader who, although dead by the time Gillespie was 10, had given his son some of his earliest grounding in music. Gillespie began playing trumpet at 14 after briefly trying the trombone, and his first formal musical training came at the Laurenburg Institute in North Carolina. Gillespie's earliest professional jobs were with the Frankie Fairfax Band, where he reportedly picked up the nickname Dizzy because of his outlandish antics. His earliest influence was Roy Elridge, whom he later replaced in Teddy Hill's band. From 1939 to 41, Gillespie was one of the principal soloists in Cab Calloway's band until he was dismissed for a notorious bandstand prank. While with Calloway, he met the Cuban trumpeter Mario Bauza, from whom he gained a great interest in Afro-Cuban rhythms. At this time, he also befriended Charlie Parker, with whom he would begin to develop some of the ideas behind bebop while sitting in at Minton's Playhouse in Harlem. 
From 1941 to 43, Gillespie freelanced with a number of big bands, including that of Earl Father Hines. Hines' band contained several musicians Gillespie would interact with in the development of bebop, such as singer Billy Eckstein, who formed his own band featuring Gillespie on trumpet in 1944. The year 1945 was crucial for both Bebop and Gillespie. He recorded with Parker many of his small ensemble hits, such as Salt Peanuts, and formed his own Bebop big band. Despite economic woes, he was able to keep his band together for four years. His trumpet playing was at a peak with rapid-fire attacks of notes and an amazing harmonic range. A number of future greats performed with Gillespie's big band, including, including saxophonist Gene Amans, Yusuf Latif, Paul Gonsalves, Jimmy Heath, James Moody, and John Coltrane. The rhythm section of John Lewis, Milt Jackson, Kenny Clark, and Ray Brown became the original modern jazz quartet. He took various bands on State Department tours around the world starting in 1956, the first time the U.S. government provided economic aid and recognition to jazz. Those excursions not only kept Gillespie working, they also stimulated his musical interests as he began incorporating different ethnic elements into his music, such as the Afro-Cuban rhythms he weaved into his big band arrangements. Never losing his thirst for collaboration, Gillespie worked with a variety of jazz stars as well as leading his own small groups on into the 1980s. Diz died of pancreatic cancer on January 6, 1993, at the age of 75. And I want to thank the National Endowments of the Arts for the biographical material there. And now, a tune written by Dizzy. Thank you. 
There is Woody and You, written by Dizzy Gillespie. 
Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. I can listen to this kind of music all day, and often do. It would have been a lot of fun to hear some of these musicians, especially this episode's featured artist, in some smoky club back in the day. With the length of the music, we'll only play five songs on this episode. In fact, there's only seven songs on the entire album. But I still want to get to this episode's interesting side note. And it has to do with how Dizzy was fired from the Cab Calloway band. The story is from bass player Milt Hinton. It was summer and the band had gone up to do three Sunday shows at the State Theater in Hartford. A couple of days earlier at the Cotton Club, Diz and I had worked out a solo for me to play with the cab jivers on Girl of My Dreams. I'd also practiced it with him backstage right before the first show. When it came time for the cab jivers feature, the four of us walked down to the front of the stage from our regular places on the bandstand. Then the back of the stage where the rest of the band was sitting was darkened and a couple of spotlights were put on us. We played a few tunes, but by the time we played Girl of My Dreams, I'd forgotten everything Diz had showed me. I must have missed my solo by a mile. The tune ended and I turned around to get a reaction from Diz, who was sitting in the dark. He was holding his nose with one hand and waving at me with the other. It was clear that he was telling me, you stink. At the exact same moment, one of the guys up on the bandstand thumped a spitball and it landed right in the spotlight next to where Chu was standing. Cab was watching the show from the wings. He saw Diz's gesture and he saw the wad of paper land. He never saw who threw it, but in Cab's eyes, Diz, Diz was always wrong, so he didn't have to study the situation any further. When the show ended, most of the guys went back to the dressing rooms. The only ones left on stage were Benny Payne and Chu, who were talking off in a corner, and I was there packing up my bass. Cab must have stopped Diz in the wings at the end of the show because I could hear him yelling, Well, you did it again. Those men were out there entertaining all those people, and you're sitting back there throwing spitballs just like you're in school. What's wrong with you? Can't you do anything right? I couldn't see Diz, but I knew he wasn't hanging his head. This time he was right. He always called Cab Fess, and I could hear him saying over and over, Fess, I didn't do it. The two of them went at it for a while. It got louder and nastier. A minute or two later, I decided to walk over to the wings where they were standing just in case. When I stepped around the corner, I saw two ladies standing a couple of feet from Cab, who was still wearing his white stage outfit. Cab was yelling, you did it. I was looking right at you when you threw it, but Diz wouldn't let it go. He was right, and he had to prove his point. He moved closer to Cab and told him in a sharper tone, you're a damn liar for saying I did it. Cab wasn't going to let one of his musicians call him a liar, especially in front of those two fine-looking women. So he called Diz some more names and then threatened, now you get on. You get out of here before I slap you around. That made it worse. Diz stood, there. Diz stood there, arms folded, looking like the Rock of Gibraltar, repeating, you ain't going to do nothing. Physically, Cab was a big man. He'd learned how to street fight growing up in Baltimore, and he was fast. Suddenly, his hand was in the air, and he slapped Diz across the side of the face. A split second later, Diz had his case knife out and was going for Cab. I was just a couple of feet away, so when Diz took a swing at Cab's stomach with his knife, I hit his hand and made a miss. Then Cab grabbed Diz around the wrist and tried to wrestle the knife away. Within seconds, the big guys, Chu and Benny, had made it to where we were and quickly pulled them apart. Chu took Cab to the dressing room, and Penny took Diz to the band room. About 10 minutes later, Cab came down to the band room where we were all talking to Diz, trying to calm him down. Cab was still wearing his white suit, but one pant leg was covered with blood and he had a bandage around his wrist. He looked at Diz and told him, pack your horn and get out of here. Then he turned and left. Before we knew it, Diz had gone out the stage door. Years later in his book, Diz was the first to publicly identify the true culprit. Of course, He'd always known because the guy who did it was sitting with him in the trumpet section, Jonah Jones. 
a trumpeter, a trumpeter you'll hear from in an upcoming episode of Spinning My Dad's Vinyl. <laughs> okay, you you found what? Where?
I found a million dollar baby in a five and ten cent store. Written by Harry Warren. And there you have selections from a Dizzy Gillespie recording session in 1959. Thanks for tuning into Volume 38, Dizzy Will Excite However You Did. If you want more information about this podcast, head over to spinningmydadsvinyl.com. I'll be back next week with all my skips, scratches, and pops with Volume 39, Glenn Miller Collection Part 2. Until then, go with the flow, my friends. <laughs>